Hello and welcome to Positive Mental Attitude, a podcast about the positive aspects of mental health. Yes, believe me, there are actually quite a few. Now, I'm Juliette Burton, a comedian, speaker, writer, nutcase, crazy person, and your guide to working out if it's okay to say nutcase or crazy person. Answer, it depends. Positive Mental Attitude podcast is in association with the UK charity Rethink Mental Illness. I created this show because I have mental health conditions, and I'm not ashamed of them. Because of them, I'm often ashamed of other aspects of myself, but not my conditions. They've taught me a lot, actually. I am who I am because of them and in spite of them. Much like my parents, actually. I've been diagnosed with anorexia, anxiety disorder, bipolar disorder, body dysmorphic disorder, bulimia, bipolar disorder, worth saying twice because it's got two parts, compulsive overeating disorder, depression, psychotic hallucinations and obsessive compulsive disorder. Now, obviously, mental illness is not a competition, but if it was, I think I'd win. Now, when someone tries to improve their physical health, they don't try and make it more miserable, do they? I mean, cardio workouts are miserable enough. So let's get positive. In this podcast, we are focusing on the solutions and positive aspects of mental illness. Welcome. The Positive Mental Attitude podcast is only possible thanks to our sponsor, Stagecoach Group, the transport people, not the acting people, who I actually imagine they probably have a huge rivalry with. Thank you, Stagecoach the bus and train one. Now, Stagecoach actually have a a whole kind of initiative around mental health for their employees. They actually try to encourage their employees in their company to talk and open up about their own mental health to each other, which I think is a brilliant thing that we could all adopt in our lives. Joining me this episode is Rachel Kelly, author, public speaker and mental health advocate. Hello, Rachel. Hello. Hi. Now, um, you are many, many things, including an author, as I mentioned. Um, Is it hard to find new things to write about um, regarding mental health or or do you never encounter that? Do you have loads of ideas? I do have loads of ideas because I don't feel I've got all the answers by any means. And I'm constantly learning new strategies and new approaches to my own positive mental health. And there's loads of new research as well new psychological studies, new nutritional studies, new areas of research, uh, new approaches all the time. So I see it as a sort of ongoing process, however long I've got. I think I'll never stop learning. Always more to learn. Because you you have a mental health condition, which is why I've asked you on to yeah. the podcast. Um, do you mind telling our listeners what that is? Yeah, so um, I have had two very serious major depressive episodes. Um, The first was pretty intense for about six months with then a long tail for a couple of years, uh, which saw me hospitalised. And then the second came a few years later and that was uh, a two-year period of serious depression, which left me uh, bedridden and unable to function, really. And then I gradually sort of made my way out of that second depressive episode, like a major depressive episode. And then since then, I feel that I've learnt to manage and live with this condition and my tendency to major depression. And I'd say now that my condition is more anxiety-driven. I feel I've worked really hard to manage my tendency to major depression. And I more or less have managed to keep off a third major depressive episode, never say never. But for now, I feel well, I feel calm. um, And I managed, though I do have to really watch particularly the anxiety, the insomnia, and obviously the danger of a a kind of recurrent major depressive episode. So um, when did those symptoms first start for you with depression? Can you remember the first time that you think, oh, looking back, that was probably the beginning? Oh, yeah. Well, for me, it was was really dramatic how it started. It began one night um, and I couldn't get to sleep. Um, I'd had patches of insomnia before. Uh, Insomnia for me is a really recurrent issue and problem. Um, Just back to your earlier point, you know, there's really interesting new work coming up about sleep and how to manage that. But um, I think it's a a very common characteristic. I love sleep. Sleep is one of my, if if I'm struggling mentally. Yeah. If I haven't, my first thing to check is, have I slept enough? Yeah, yeah. And it's, for me, it's sort of like, 
every night because for me that's how my episodes start with with major insomnia but I didn't actually know this at the time so this was way back I mean this is 20 years ago um so it's been a long story but um and yet you're only 18 how is that uh, how is that's it very sweet of you that's very sweet of you yeah well I mean don't really believe in biological age <laughs> but um yeah so I, so I couldn't get to sleep and I was sort of tossing and turning um and that would have been okay. I'd had bits of insomnia before. But um, the problem was with the insomnia came some quite alarming physical symptoms. Um, my heart rate speeded up. I began to th- I th- I was sort of thinking I was having a heart attack, actually. I was like thump, thump, thump the heart. Mm. And um, I, I felt very nauseous, like I had to throw up, you know, rushing to the bathroom. But I didn't actually vomit. My head was absolutely racing, very frightening thoughts. And my head was sort of going, well, you know, I can't get to sleep. I can't get to work. I can't get to work. can't pay the bills. can't pay the bills. Lose has... You know, this kind of thinking I later discovered is known as catastrophic. Again, it's very characteristic of depressant and anxious thinking. And I remember having a very frightening feeling that I was falling. Um, I remember sort of clinging to the bed, like holding on tight, like if I didn't hold on tight, like the space had opened up before me, um, before me, underneath me. Um, so it was a very frightening and, and I, I was just feeling really quite ill and I just didn't know what was happening. Um, but supposedly being quite a sort of high functioning together kind of person, I thought, right, you know, Next morning, I'll refast an activity to its normal timetable. You know, breakfast at breakfast time, lunch at lunchtime, you know, dine at dinner time. And, you know, I'll get back to sleep at night time. But um, unfortunately, I stayed up the next night. I felt iller and iller, really frightened as well. Like, um, you know, just couldn't control my mind. Like, I remember having this image of being a bit like a skater, like the marks on the ice were going round and round and getting deeper and deeper and more and more frightening, like, you know, what was happening, what was going, you know, what was wrong with me, you know, I, I you know, I, I, I was totally losing control, I couldn't grip anything. And I was, as I say, feeling nauseous, my head really, really hurt. Um, anyway, stayed up the next night, felt iller and iller and iller. And I did this basically for three days and three nights, I pretty much stopped eating. Um, I remember trying to down some miso soup and couldn't eat. Um, it, was, it was so weird, actually, as you, you mentioned your own story on eating disorders it was sort of like you know suddenly I was losing this weight crazy rate anyway um cut a long story short um my husband realized I was pretty unwell got to a doctor taken to hospital thought I was going to see a cardiologist and I said you know I think I'm having a heart attack and I feel so ill and um and he said well uh, you know sit you down I'm a psychiatrist this is very classic symptoms for a major depressive episode driven by anxiety you know, you've got the racing thoughts because that's part of it. Um, y- you've gone into fear or flight, uh, a sort of chronic, i.e. ongoing condition. So you want to empty your stomach because you need to run faster because you're imagining this lion on the savannah that's going to eat you up. You're, you're trying to grip the situation mentally. Um, these are all very classic signs of a sort of anxiety-driven depressive episode. I and mean, you'll, you'll know there's different kinds of depression. There's ones where we feel a kind of lassitude, low mood. Minds are kind of frantic. Um, doctors called it a heightened anxiety. Um, and that's, you know, I couldn't sleep. So that was the start, really, of, 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 of my 20-year my journey, really, with, with dealing with depression, because um, I was treated with very strong drugs. I was given sleeping pills, the kind of antidepressants that calm you down, anti-anxiety medication, um, as I say, I went to hospital for six months, uh, suicidal. You know, not because I didn't like my life, but just I felt so unwell. Um, and I just had no idea that mental illness could be like that. Um, but anyway, this is 20 years ago. You know, stigma is a big issue today, but mm. you can imagine 20 years ago. At that time, I was a journalist. I was, I was working at the Times newspaper, but um, I was just frantic to get back to work, get back to normal. Um, so I got back to work, went back into the newsroom, Shut the topic down. You know, obviously I told my news editor, but nobody so much else. you were working at a newspaper at the time? Yeah, which was actually a really stressful environment, but I didn't really connect that. I didn't really even understand there was a thing called mental health. I mean, I look back, my ignorance was really staggering. So this is like the late, late 90s we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, so this, this first episode was in 1997. So just over 20 years ago. I was first diagnosed in 1999. So this is... Oh, okay. God, you look so young. Hang on. That can't be right. (laughs) We'll get on to me in a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is an interesting... I remember that time, the first diagnosis. It was a very different time to now, at least talking about it. Completely. And and it was absolutely... I mean, it is still, I'm afraid, very much a drugs-based approach to treatment. But we have much more of a sense now of lifestyle, a holistic approach, mind-body links you know, the kind of 
a whole look at your lifestyle was I, I was just basically given medication mm. and told not not told pull yourself together, but no real sort of uh, talk about you know maybe working in a newsroom is quite stressful for you. You've got two small children. You're trying to do it all. You know, let's have a think about maybe rethinking how you work, how you lead your life, and other strategies other than just drugs. Mm. So I had no therapy. I mean, even now you'll know it's hard to get therapy. Yes, um, I was going to ask. Do you think it's yeah. really changed that much now? Well, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm people I'm working with, running support groups for for Rethink and other charities. You know, people really struggle to get to get that kind of therapeutic support. They might get a bit of CBT for maybe six weeks, cognitive behavioural therapy, but so long term therapy support is is hard to come by. And when I was ill first time, uh, there was no there was no suggestion that therapy could have helped me at all. Whereas actually, you know. And it, I mean, in a way, it wasn't just the practitioners. It was also me. I just didn't want to go there. It's like, what's under the stone? Let's yeah. keep away. Because therapy doesn't, it takes man hours from the, the treatment side of it, but it also takes your own time and yeah. a lot of effort, not just within that hour yeah. or however long you have with a therapist. But It's just so totally agree. And, and it's painful work. And, and when at that point, so I was in my mid-30s, I, I just didn't want to go there. I just wanted the whole thing to go away. Um, and I just felt it was absolutely not career enhancing to discuss it or talk about it or look any closer. And I just thought, right, that's a one off. It's not happening again. I, 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 you know, I'm not mentally unwell. I don't have this thing called depression. You know, I don't want to know about it. Um, so I sort of basically shut the whole topic down. And and I and my luck held for a bit. But then I had a second major depressive episode a few years later. And the problem is, again, as you probably know, with depression. It's a bit like a kind of wash on a watercolour. The first one's dark, the, the second one's darker. So it's a bit like if you've broken your arm once, if you break it, uh, you know, the second break's going to be worse. And I'd done no work on myself, so actually I hadn't really changed anything. I'd just gone straight back into, you know, full-time job, small children, you know, um, being married, you know, all, all the demands I'd put on myself and, you know, trying to tick all those proverbial boxes. And um, anyway, I crashed the second time. A similar process, started with the insomnia, very anxiety-driven. But at that time, I was, um, yeah, yeah, I feel quite emotional, actually. Um, yeah, you know, it sort of defined my life. I mean, my whole life now really has been um, defined by these two episodes. But, yeah, it's still something to remember them. Um, yeah, because it's just so frightening when you're unwell. And, yes, I was... Same thing, insomnia leading to major symptoms, very much drugs-based, very, very unwell, um, suicidal. It was funny because my family and people around me said, oh, you know, you've, we've been here before, you, you know, you, you'll recover, um, you know, it, it's okay, you know, almost like it's, it's better this mm. time. But for me, it was absolutely terrifying because I thought, oh, God, you know, this thing's back, this monster's back, and I'm... I've got to make friends. I, I mean, it's not going away and I'm going to have to deal with this and it's going to mean a kind of major re-evaluation really of everything in my life, my job, my family, my stress levels, my aspirations, my dreams, my hopes, everything. But also I didn't know I was going to get better. And that's what's so scary is, is you know, I did get better and I'm really so lucky, but, you know, people don't all get better and 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 it is very very frightening and when you're very unwell and you're with other people who are very unwell you know you you you're terrified i mean someone was talking about death the other day and it wasn't so much the death that frightened me it was just a life of not living you know no enjoyment in anything that you normally enjoyed and you know i had small children and i thought oh, i'm not going to be their mum and everything so and it was so long you know Two years is a long time. When, when you're in it, you, when you, you're in it, you yeah. can't see. You don't know that it, it's going to end. It, it's all very well saying this too shall pass, and it, you just Absolutely. don't know. Absolutely. This is this is all about uh, the positive aspects of mental health. Yeah. And, and the nice thing is that I feel nowadays, like being able to sit here and chat to you as openly as this, and thank you so much for being this mm -hmm. open. There's hopefully somebody out there listening who doesn't know what it is they're going through or mm. has recently been diagnosed and they don't know that it will end, that there, yeah. will, there will come a point that they'll feel differently. Like, for, um, Have you found that it's something that you that you have learnt how to manage? Do you, or, or yeah. are you cured? No, I mean, I, I, mean I, I suppose the way I think of it is that, you know, it's an illness, okay? 
it is an illness. If something goes wrong with your brain, like something might go wrong with your liver or your kidney, that's okay. Lots of people have to cope with illnesses. People cope with diabetes, certain types, they learn to manage it. So for me, the way I see it is, right, I'm going to learn to manage this as best I can. I've got this thing called depression, anxiety, this tendency, and I'm going to come up with strategies and ways of learning to live with it. And in a way, for me, that was a real light bulb moment because it's very empowering to actually take some agency myself. And in a way, seeing how people manage physical illnesses was very inspiring because it was almost like, okay, you know, you know, so many people have issues, physical and mental. Welcome to the world. You know, a lot of people have to learn to manage things. And, and, I, and I, I think sometimes the drug-based approach, and once you get into the healthcare system and all respect incredible work psychiatrists do, and, you know, when you're suicidal, don't tell me that you're not going to go to hospital and you're not going to take the drugs. You just are. It's just, you know, people debate antidepressants. like, you're going to take the pills, I promise you. If, yeah. you if, if it's between topping yourself and taking the pills, you're going to take the pills. Yes. You, it's just sometimes I find the debate really crazy. We're talking about serious depression here. So all of that I completely get. But as I did begin to get a bit better, part of the recovery was also taking agency and beginning to think that I wasn't just dependent on going to see the psychiatrist, you know, my GP, my, my medication... I could begin to pull in some other strategies. And I was really excited. I think there was some nice guidance. I think it was earlier this year that said that, you know, if you are on medication and loads of us are um, and, you know, maybe forever or may not be. And that's a whole nother debate. Um, at the moment, I'm not. Um, I'm learning to manage things without it. But what I liked about the nice guidance, it said, whatever the, whatever your situation, if you're taking medication, you should also be doing all these other things. Yes. And the medication is more effective when you do. And and that was very much my experience. And that was a bit of a turning point with sort of sense of it's not either or. You know, I'm still under the care of doctors. I've got to, you know, I, I get have checkups with a with, with, with the medical profession, of course. But alongside, I can pull in some other strategies. For me, I always think of it as like a, a Batman's utility belt. That yeah, I like that. You yeah. have you have different things at your disposal. Um, yeah, and I've I've been to so many different therapies, and there's yeah. CBT in there that I've learned some stuff from cognitive behavioural therapy. There's, yeah, there's always the option of um, I can go to the doctor and say I think yeah. I need to be put on some kind of medication right now. And there's different medications. There's uh, there's psychotherapy. There's uh, reading, uh, bibliotherapy, mi- yeah. mi- mindfulness, yeah, you know, all the things that I, I've collected. Even going for a massage or going for a walk or completely, these, completely, these are all things that you can use, and it's up to me. And sometimes I will purposefully not use any of them. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> but that then I have, I, there will be a point that that that's that not using that utility belt, not using those things at my disposal will mean that I, I'm not able to cope, I'm not managing well. Yeah. So with, with we're focusing on solutions yeah. in this podcast. Medication is one solution. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd never, to anybody listening, I'd, I'd, I'd never say, you know, rule it out. And, and, and if you are on medication, a lot of people would like to come off it. Again, always that's something for a doctor. That's not, you know, wouldn't be my speciality. You've got to be very, very careful around medication. But... But exactly as you're saying, you see, I my experience of having been, quote, a kind of like a patient for so long or somebody, you know, who wants to try out, like you, like trying out all these different things. So I think what tends to happen is that for good reasons, people are very messianic about different approaches. So the medical profession is quite um, obviously keen on a drugs-based approach because that's their expertise, blah, blah, blah. So they'll go medication, you know, mindfulness fantastic I use elements of it again sometimes the mindfulness lobby can be like you know mindfulness you're sorted and 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 that's not been my experience my experience is more like you it much more a sort of smorgasbord pick and choose things keep changing the stressors keep changing your age changes your hormones changes you may need different things that you're you know along your mental health journey but you're you're in charge everybody's mental health is so subtle and different and the stresses they're under are so subtle and different that I, I would always say, you know, um, I can share what, what's helped me. Like, you know, some of the nutritional approaches are really interesting at the moment. Mm. And again, the nutritionists and the doctors in that field would say, 
you know, if you need en- enough omega-3s and healthy fats or, or some of the different ideas there, you know, you're sorted. Again, for me, pick and choose, you know, pull together your own toolbox and everybody's is different. If someone was listening to this and they were preparing themselves to go see a doctor for the first time to talk about their mental health what advice would you give them about that because it's quite scary you've got 10 minutes with the doctor nowadays you know they're so busy how do you how do you approach that How, how if you could do it again because I know it took me a really long time it took me to the point where my my physical I I'd really struggled with anorexia for a really long time yeah to then to then go talk to the doctor and say this this is what this this is yeah um, it took somebody else taking me and saying you your your life is now in danger gosh um, yeah and if I'd look if I'd look back and nowadays I, I realized that I think I was struggling with uh, with anxiety disorder and depression and obsessive compulsive disorder many many years before I even struggled yeah. with with well food food was sort of a part of that for me well if you're going to see a doctor you know how can you make the most of that of that as you say that eight minute encounter so I think the first thing you have to do is is keep a record and keep a notebook um, and just be very orderly about it so I mean if you want to sort of know ahead um, how a doctor would be looking at you um, you can look at the Beck inventory system which you probably know so it's kind of 20 rough questions that people use in a, in a, still an amazingly kind of primitive way of diagnosing if you have suffering from from a mental health condition particularly anxiety and depression is the is the Beck score but that would be things like tracking your mood uh, you know from from taking pleasure in things to taking no pleasure in things it would be things like tracking your sleep but be, to be orderly like you know you went to bed at this time you know you got this number of hours sleep and um, tracking your diet like whether you're able to you know um, eat so Keeping a very regular uh, diary for at least two weeks. I mean, I think the the usual rule is that if you're suffering from more than six or seven of these kinds of symptoms across insomnia, nutrition, diet, um, mood, for more than two weeks, at that point you should be booking an appointment with your GP. But your GP will be able to be uh, much more effective and proactive in what's the right diagnosis if you have a really good checklist um, looking at those things. So, as I say, prioritising mood, sleep, food, um, those would be probably the three that I would have a, have a checklist. This is interesting. This is something that I've over my, over my um, many many years in yeah. the mental health career. Um, I, I've constantly been asked to do these oh, okay. sort of these diaries, yeah, interesting. You know? and I find it really hard. I, mm. I, it's frightening sometimes to have this mirror, this reflection held up to you. Of this, yeah. this is what you're doing to yourself, whether that's or this is how you're feeling. This is charting it and saying actually. This is quite frightening to to see how often, how frequently, maybe I'm struggling with taking pleasure in things, or yeah, or this is this is how you're treating your body with your food. This is what you're able to to put in your body. This is this yeah. is when you're misusing food. I, yeah, that's something I've I've struggled with uh, many many different ways. Yeah, um, what advice would you give people if they were struggling? Yeah, I, I I really get that, and I think um, that first time, my whole instinct was to shut it down. I didn't want to know. And as you say, I, I totally get the idea that, um, you know, it's more frightening kind of having a good look at yourself, which is partly why I avoided therapy for years and years, because I didn't really want to have a look. I, I think my answer would be, this is how you're going to get better. You know, no one can work from a blank page. And unless they have a good sense of your true symptoms, um, you know, that's going to be the starting point for your recovery. And also, I think somewhere you've got to kind of lodge the idea that, you're not making it up. You know, I think sometimes there's a feeling that I have, like, am I making this up? You know, am, am I am I basically fine or am I basically a bit, like, crazy? You know, what, what what's really going on here? And and I think actually keeping a kind of regular checklist, I, as you say, it, it is it can be really, really hard. But, you know, the more you deny the truth of what's happening, you know, the further you are from getting any answers. Now, you mentioned the motivation of your children. yeah. I have mentioned I don't have children, yeah. but I do have show babies and book babies yeah. and creativity babies. Yes. Um, so you you are not only a mum, you're also an author and all these 
other wonderful things with the pub- public speaking and mental health advocate, but let's focus on the author yeah. side of you for a bit. Um, you have written lots of books, one of which I'm particularly interested in speaking about this kind of uh, bright versus dark. Yeah. Um, the Walking on Sunshine, 52 Small Steps to Happiness. Yeah. It's all about a holistic approach to mental health and how that's helped you recover, which is basically what we've been what we've been talking about. Um, could you sum up some of that book for me, but leave out enough details so that people will still buy it? <laughs> that's very sweet of you. Yeah, so I mean, I suppose, um, yeah, just to sort of get the chronology. So after the second major episode, which was about seven or eight years ago, well, yeah. after that sort of ended, and, and you all know it doesn't sort of like suddenly end, like I'm now all sorted. I suppose the last six or seven years, I've sort of spent almost like being a sort of mental health reporter, like investigating all these different approaches and like what what are the strategies and where's the good evidence and does this work and does that work and trying out working, as I say, with therapists and nutritionists, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I also was was very, very privileged. So after I wrote my memoir about being so unwell, my, my Black Rainbow memoir, um, I got involved with a couple of the mental health charities. And um, so obviously Rethink, but also Sane. And um, I was involved with Young Minds for a time till had a bit too many things to do, but um, certainly Sane and Rethink. And um, I started uh, working with their support groups, so, so pe- other people who were suffering from mental illness, um, because I just found it so... Uh, reassuring to be with other people. It's kind of like my tribe, um, but also to hear sort of things that were working for them and trying stuff out together. Um, and it started really with poetry workshops um, because I love words. That's my trade. I'm a wordsmith. So with poetry, and did you discover that after writing Black Rainbow? So I actually discovered it in hospital when I was so unwell because um, there was a period when the drugs weren't working and... Um, I was just suicidal and I, I didn't know what to turn to because, you know, drugs are the kind of main main approach. And um, I remember it very well. I was sort of holding my mum's hand on one side of the bed and I had my husband on the other side and I was sort of screaming, saying, I want to die, I want to die, I want to die, I want to die. And then my mum started um, reciting this line, actually. It's from Corinthians in the Bible and it says... Um, um, my grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. And I think even if you're not religious, you can recognise the poetry and the beauty in that. And it was a, it was a really different message. It was a really positive message. It's like, oh my God, you know, like you were saying in your introduction, something positive is going to come out of this. Actually, wow, I'm getting quite goosebumpy actually because it was quite a light bulb moment through feeling so unwell. Hey, you know what? I might be stronger. What I thought. Just you know, my strength through is perfect. Words. And yeah, and so I was lying there, and so I started repeating this line, and my strength is made perfect in weakness. My strength is made perfect in weakness. And then sort of little by little, my mum would sort of introduce like a couplet and then a verse because I wasn't well enough to read a book. And so I'd loved poetry as a child, and there were quite a few lovely um, bits of poetry from Rumi, you know, this being human as a guest house each day, a new arrival, welcome them all you know these two or three lines and it'd be like you know when your mind is absolutely terrifying like it was like a mantra I'd repeat them um so that was you know back to walking on sunshine there are a few poems in there that really spoke to me just little lines or mantras um just working with mantras as well working with words so one of one of the ones I'm really using at the moment which I I find so helpful I'm using this one at the moment I give myself permission it's I such a simple permission. line, and I promise you I'm using it about five times a day at the moment. So it's like, you know, if I feel that, you know, I'm getting the old bat squeaks, the anxiety's rising, I give myself permission to say no. So I was asked to do something recently, and I, and I found myself saying, I give myself permission to say I can't take on that commitment. So that those sorts of ideas, so the 50, 52 small steps are sort of focusing on little kind of almost like life hacks that have proved the most powerful for me. I like that. I like the, um, my, my therapist always tells me control is an illusion and I keep, yeah. that's, I keep, uh, I keep re- repeating that. I often find that when I'm, when I'm interviewed, I keep giving back my therapist's answers. I hear my therapist speaking when I'm answering the answers in interviews sometimes. But I, I think that's okay because <laughs> I've sort okay? of internalised wise people who, who've really helped, like in my therapist, but, you know, other people who've suffered from mental health issues and how, you know, some of their strategies. I mean, I'm, I'm such a believer in 
two plus two is five and you just can learn all the time. So with um, your first book, how, yeah. how did you come to write that first book from being in hospital and dis- rediscovering your love of poetry yeah. to then discovering this need for creativity? Is that the right way of saying it? Yeah, I mean, I think it was a lot of things. I mean, writing's my trade. You know, I've been a journalist. It's sort of like if you've played tennis, you try and get back to the court. So for me, it was sort of what I knew. So it sort of never occurred to me not to write about it. Um, I hate waste. I'm an incredible recycler. My daughter's obsessed with plastic at the moment. So it's kind of, I felt that I didn't want them to be wasted years, uh, what had happened, and that if I could... Um, there's a nice line um, some of them my lines are religious but I suppose that's because we're in deep waters and in a way I did turn to quite a spiritual uh, sort of answer because yeah I think if you're suicidal you know you're looking to the greats but anyway there's another lovely line about he who going through the Vale of Baca so the Vale of Baca is the desert make of it a well so I thought okay can I make anything positive about what's happened and I love that. I love not wasting what had happened. And it felt like I was sort of knitting together something out of nothing. Um, and I'm a writer, so I'd had diaries and I, my medical notes and letters and emails. And as I started to recover, because I'm very chatty, and once I'd got into the second episode when I was really over, I'm shutting up about this, I was in touch with friends and then other friends would say, oh, this person's not very well. And we'd be swapping emails and I'd be swapping poems and they'd say, oh, that's helpful. Um, And say, have you tried this? Have you tried that? And it felt like there was something very constructive and positive. And, you know, let's share, you know. Did you ever struggle with being a writer, getting up, being in charge of your own day and also having depression? Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean... I think I was lucky in some ways because having been a journalist, what I did, um, in the end, it wasn't right for me to keep that job in the newsroom. It was super, super stressful. You know, I might get a call from a news editor at 10 o'clock saying, you know, can you follow up this story, blah, blah. Um, It wasn't compatible. So I went freelance. But the thing was, is that I recreated my newspaper day sort of around the bookends of, of, of also, you know, looking after the children, which it turned out that was something I really wanted to do um, as much as I could. So I'd sort of do my classic newspaper day. I'd read all the newspapers, which I know nobody reads anymore, but I'd have my coffee. I'd be at my desk at 10 o'clock, um, which was which is, you know, newspapers start at 10 o'clock. That's the sort of pattern. So I kind of recreated that. So in that sense, it was probably a bit easier for me than you. If you haven't had that kind of, you know, I'd done it for 11 years, day in, day out. So it was almost like that's what my body knew. Um, and actually, for me, that was very reassuring because I felt, okay, Yes, yeah, I kind of know this. I can do this. Um, so that so that side of it was good. But as you say, I think it, for me, it wasn't so much that the writing would trigger the depression, though that was an issue when I was re- remembering the very dark times. That was hard. So how did you protect yourself from that? For me, again, it was a sense of a, of, of a wider mission that actually this was the way partly um, to my recovery, which was um, being true. So what had happened, not making it up, is quite relaxing when you don't have to pretend to be something that you're not. Like if you're going to go out with a book saying, <laughs> I've had two major depressive episodes, I've got a mental health condition kind of thing, you know? Yeah. It, it's like, in a way, it's kind of like there's nothing scary anymore. There's nothing to hide. It's almost like a shame exercise. Yeah. Just, there's, there is no shame. As soon as there's you no shame. go through it, push through it. Yeah. And yeah, it's empowering to be able to. You've you've given yourself a voice. You're giving other people a voice. You know, it's solicitors. It's 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 sort of people who they've got a job, and exactly as you say, they're kind of coping. Yeah, but they're not people who perhaps have no obvious. Yes, um, cl- classical. You know, back in the eighties, it would be well the the, the high powered, stressful yes. people. They, yes. they they clearly have to have yes. breakdowns. Or the people on the outskirts of society, exactly. Um, already, but people in the middle actually, exactly, increasingly are, are struggling and being diagnosed more yeah. and more. Yeah, and and I think you put your finger on it. This idea that you've got to have a reason, mm. and actually, you know, there are um, risk factors for depression and anxiety. So we know there's a hormonal link. Uh, we know there's a genetic link, especially for bipolar. Uh, we know there's a stress link. You know, big bumps in the road, bereavement. Um, you know, redundancy, divorce. These are big stressors that 
can lead to um, mental illness. Yeah. I often get quite frustrated that people say to me, well, um, what caused yeah. it? Yeah. Well, why, do, why does it matter what caused it? Yeah. I, I don't know. I, all that matters is how do, how do I deal with it today? Is that exactly? And of course, there's a stress-related thing with lots of illnesses and lifestyle thing with illnesses. And it, and it does happen in a context. And I think you've got to somehow find the sweet spot, which happens in a context, which which is why you can do something about it. But also, you know, if you had, I don't know, um, I don't know, being diagnosed with, I can't think of an illness, but uh, I don't know, um, cancer. There's not always a reason. No. You just, bad luck, you got it. Yeah. And and I think that's also really important for this guilt trip shame thing because I really struggle with that. Like, what, what what's wrong with me? Like, what have I done wrong? I've, I'm, you know, I'm a lucky girl. But then that, that layers, the shame that you feel yeah. about mental yeah, health totally. conditions layers more shame upon shame upon shame that that perhaps is a part of something you're trying to unpick to deal with the mental health condition in the first place so i've got some information here from rethink mental illness um about anxiety and depression yeah so just in case anyone's listening and thinking i wonder if i have yeah uh, what rachel uh was diagnosed with so should we start with anxiety Mm -hmm. um so anxiety they're sadly different which is a really good point they are um so anxiety is uh, a normal response to stress or danger and is often called the flight or fight response. This process involves adrenaline being quickly pumped through the body, enabling it to cope with whatever catastrophe may be coming. The problems arise when this response is out of proportion to the actual danger of the situation Mm -hmm. or is generated when there is no danger present. There are lots of different types of anxiety disorder, general anxiety disorder, uh, disorder, phobias, uh, OCD and PTSD are types of anxiety disorders. Symptoms of an anxiety disorder include racing thoughts, uncontrollable overthinking, difficulties concentrating, feelings of dread, panic or impending doom, feeling irritable, heightened alertness, problems with sleep, changes in appetite, wanting to escape from the situation you are in and disassociation. Mm. So that's the, the starting point for when it can become an actual disordered way of thinking. Yeah. Does that sound familiar to you? Absolutely. And I think the key point is it's chronic and ongoing as opposed to appropriate. You know, that's how evolution, you know, we, we, we need anxiety because, you know, if you see the line, you've got to run. But it's when it's on, it's ongoing and it, it's all the time and you don't have any sense of proportion. For me, I found that my anxiety disorder, looking back um, retrospectively, mm. um, I think I actually started struggling with it when I was about eight years old or mm. seven, seven or eight and turned very quickly to food mm. and to obsessive ritual behaviour yes. um, to try and lessen my anxiety, which is an amazing survival mechanism. Yeah. I, I still think it's brilliant in a weird way that that we develop these disorders as a way of surviving with the original disordered thought. So yes. the, the, anxi- the heightened anxiety that I felt, I was trying to seek out an, an obvious way to lessen the anxiety. Therefore, perhaps I developed disorders that, that then became a problem in themselves. Yes, to they took with... on a life of their own. Exactly. Yeah, that. I get that. Exactly. So that's where my I believe my eating disorders originated and, yeah. um, and my obsessive compulsive disorder um, because anxiety is something that we all we all experience, I think. Now, depression, uh, f- so depression, according to Rethink Mental Illness, is fairly common, affecting about one in ten people at some point during their life. It affects men and women, young and old. Depression is a long-lasting, low-mood disorder. It affects your ability to do everyday things, feel pleasure or take interest in activities. Symptoms include low mood, feeling sad and irritable or angry, having less energy to do certain things, Losing interest or enjoyment in activities you used to enjoy. Loss of concentration. Becoming tired more easily. Disturbed sleep and losing your appetite. Feeling guilty or worthless. Thoughts of self-harm or suicide. Mm. That sounds very similar to what you've been describing to us. And and for you, it, it became... Very acute, yeah, and yeah. Uh, and you had these episodes. For yeah. some people, it might be a different experience of that. Might it might be something that they might have for a longer period or a shorter period, to a lesser or greater extent. I think I think that's such a good point, and I, I suppose my experience is 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 so much that everybody is such an individual, and their experience is so unique. I suppose inevitably, and I absolutely get the sort of different medical definitions, but. I also think there's quite a lot of sort of bleeding between the two and that often they can overlap or you can have one and it can lead to another. Um, so, so, but but all the way through, I mean, and sometimes people have some symptoms of anxiety and some symptoms of depression that they, they kind of kind of go together. So, for example, the disturbed sleep can both be anxiety, but it could also be depression. But um, I think that's absolutely right that, that um, 
you know, some people have, have just episodes, some people it's long term, some people it's very circumstantial if they put themselves in such situations. I don't know, even something simple like flying, you know, someone who doesn't routinely have anxiety, you put them in a plane, they're off. Um, but yes, absolutely, there's a, a very sort of very nuanced and um, individual experience that people have. Uh, Rethink Mental Illness also offers advice and information through free fact sheets at rethink.org. I'd say that again because clearly I haven't put my teeth in today. Uh, three, free, through free fact sheets at rethink.org and a helpline. Uh, calls are charged at local rates and you can call them on 0300 5,927. And I'll say that in a different way because numbers are weird. Uh, 0300 927 and lines are open Monday to Friday 9.30am to 4pm excluding bank holidays or you can email advice at rethink.org and for 24-7 emotional support you can also call the Samaritans on 116123 in the UK and Ireland or email joe at samaritans.org and if you're outside the UK uh, because this is a podcast you might be listening in a far-flung country uh, so please uh, do uh, go see your doctor in your area who can recommend local support because there is a lot of support out there. Yeah. And and also I'd say, you know, a diagnosis is not a life sentence. You know, it may be a really positive thing that you will then start to get the support and the toolkit and all the kind of things that you need, you know, to, to, to get back to a more joyful place. So I think sometimes people, because the stigma is still there, people, oh, panic, panic, you know, I've had a diagnosis and it's the end of the world. You know what? That might be just the beginning of a really great new chapter when you're going to get the help. Now, um, we have touched a couple of times on on food, which yeah. is my oh, my lifelong love and hate. Uh, yeah. My I, my biggest passion and my biggest obsession, and also uh, my my biggest nightmare that I I uh, yeah. You you have an interesting relationship with food. Um, you've written a book that I'm very excited by because I love cooking, but also I'm obsessed with cooking. Uh, yeah. So I I would like to ask you about this third book that you've got. Um, it's yeah. So a, a bit different to the other two. Yeah. So so yeah. So as it were, Black Room is the sort of mothership of being unwell, walking on sunshine, little strategies, and then um, a couple of years ago, I did this one with a lovely nutritionist called Alice McIntosh, Happy Kitchen, Good Mood Food. So so what happened was um, I went to see my GP as I say, but it was about four or five years ago. And I'd done quite a lot of different things. So, I, and I was feeling better. I'd done my CBT and I'd done some therapy and, you know, I tried to up the exercise and, you know, all, all, all the sort of classics, all of which were, were actually good. And as I was leaving, she said, what about happy foods? And I said, what do you mean happy food? She said, well, there's some really interesting research. It's, it's beginning to be looked at as a kind of, you know, there's a whole field, nutritional psychiatry. And I thought, oh, my God, that's so exciting. I never heard of that. A new, new idea. And she said, yes, um, um, three happy foods, dark green leafy vegetables, dark chocolate and oily fish. And I thought, oh, my God, I love all of those. Tell me more, tell me more, tell me more. I mean, I was really absolutely electrified. And she said, well, I can't really because um, I don't feel qualified because a, a GP on the NHS in a, in a, I think it's a, is it a five-year training, seven-year training? Anyway, they get about eight hours of nutrition. So she said, I don't really feel qualified. So I did my homework and I noodled around and, teamed up with Alice, went to see Alice and said, look, you know, um, do you really think there's anything in this? Can I use food to improve my mood? And she said, absolutely, 100%. She doesn't just deal with psychological disorders um, like mine, but she deals with all sorts of health conditions. So we basically then, um, I started as a client, became a friend, and we spent five years and we, we looked at around 200 different studies. But we took all my symptoms. So we took the insomnia, we took the low mood, we took the anxiety, um, comfort food and um, sort of went through looking at the studies in that area and then coming up with recipes that might not, you know, deal with those symptoms. And I just loved it because it was just, well, it was just a new, whole new tool in the toolbox. I um, think with my, in my um, ongoing mental health journey, I feel that when it comes to nutrition, yeah. that's an often overlooked area that I'm, yeah. I'm so grateful for um, the fact that the positive aspect of being treated for eating disorders is that you are given ridiculous amounts of nutritional education. Yeah. Um, and actually, I, I found that a huge, a huge benefit 
because I didn't understand food. I understand food from an emotional level. Yeah. Um, I don't actually maybe understand isn't the right word, but I being able to scientifically understand how my body processes food, how my brain creates chemicals out of the foods I put in it. Yes. Um, blood sugar levels. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Steady. Uh, keep them steady. Yeah. How much of an effect what I put in my body can have uh, on my mood. Yeah. Um, from a depression aspect as well as from the eating disorders management. But the uh, the idea of always including proteins in each meal to help, yes. help stabilize my blood yeah, sugar. Yeah, yeah. I find that if I don't look after my blood sugar levels, I I will really struggle. Yeah. And also given my history of um, eating disorders, I've been a size four and a size 20 due to um, anorexia and compulsive overeating disorder and going from one to the other, my blood sugar levels are super, super sensitive. Sensitive, yeah, for your insulin and everything, yeah. And now when I am, um, when I, when I, I don't sometimes realise that I'm hungry, I, I have to put a timer on to make sure that I eat at right. regular intervals. Um, and sometimes I'll just feel a pain rather, or lightheaded rather than actually be aware of my hunger. Yeah. Have you, have you, how have you found that food has helped you in your journey with depression? Oh, oh, absolutely massively. I think the first thing that I did um, was cut <laughs> crap. So um, carb- carbonated drinks, refined sugars, aspartamine and additives and processed meats and processed foods. So um, basically a two-pronged approach, cut them out and then add in some things that would help. And I mean, I don't know if you think I look well, but... You look um, gorgeous. As I said earlier, you only <laughs> I look, look about, about gorgeous, but, um I noticed a difference once I began to change my diet pretty much instantly. Like it was much quicker than antidepressants, which, as we know, take a couple of weeks to work. I mean, it was almost instant. I began to feel a kind of zing in my step. And I was just electrified that it could do that. And it wasn't like I was eating really unhealthily. I mean, I was, you know, I had a perfectly sort of slightly meat and two veg kind of diet, but not terrible. But um, the contrast, as I say, when I began to work with Alice and began to make these changes, and also, as you say, kind of psychologically understanding it. So things like gut health, Mm. which I think it's become very kind of widely, we've become much more aware of that. But just even the fact that, you know, we've got our brain here, we've got our stomach here, we've got this thing called the vagus nerve, which links our brain and our stomach. The vagus nerve. It's called the vagus nerve. And oh. I think you'll be hearing a lot more about it. There's a whole new field, which, you know, again, when you're saying the journey, I mean, there's Nothing. a whole new field, vagal toning. I don't know if you know about that. I, I was thinking about gambling. That's totally different. Vagus. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah last week. Oh, no. <laughs> um, but anyway, the, the the basic idea, and 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 the professor on this is a guy called Michael Gershon, who's done a lot of work in the US. But, but basically this idea that your gut is like your second brain. So your gut sends as many messages to your brain as your brain does to your stomach. And so if you can have a nice, happy connection between the two and improve your gut health. So that's things like um, the reason that um, my GP said probiotics are the actually healthy bacteria. That's Ah. like the yogurt and the fermented foods. That's the actual uh, healthy bacteria that you want to help your gut health and your gut flora. And then the prebiotics are the stuff that the bacteria feed on. That's the dark green leafy vegetables, which also help things like um, digestion and in other ways. But but this notion of kind of improving your gut health and that improving your mental health. I mean, I love that idea that there was this kind of loop. Yeah. And again, it was this sort of holistic approach. And also I think it was really helpful to sort of move on from the sort of guilt trip, shame. There's something wrong with me. Um, you know, I'm 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 bonkers to actually maybe there's something physiological going on here. Um, you know, a lot of people have have problems with with you know, poor gut flora and poor gut health. And it's so simple. It would be so great if if, the, um, if we could one day have um, the healthcare where we can all be provided with nutritional um, education. Yeah. Um, or even not healthcare, maybe just in schools being educated. Absolutely. On it, should be on, it should be on the curriculum and how to cook and stuff. I mean, and, and I think part of the reason I did the Happy Kitchen is that I don't think the information is that widely available because nutrition still isn't mainstream. Though interestingly, in some countries, it's becoming much more part of mainstream care for people with psychiatric problems. You know, in particular, for example, in Israel, you know, there's a, a much more common that if you see a psychiatrist, you'd see a nutritionist at the same time. And, you you know, you'd look at things like omega-3s, which are the healthy fats. Really interesting trials happening at King's College London right now, um, supplementing with omega-3s. Um, Dr. Carmine Pariante is the, is, the, is the researcher there who's, 
you know, having good outcomes. This isn't for suicidal depression. This is more for mild to moderate depression. And, um, and prevention as well. Prevention yeah. more than more than cure. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm a big believer in that. Yeah. Um, now, if we can't afford uh, our own nutritionist, yeah. but we can afford a book, yeah. uh, could you recap your three books that we could possibly go out and buy? Oh, well, that's very kind. So I suppose they reflect my my sort of holistic approach and different people needing different things and no one size fits all. If if if, if you wish more for a sort of bibliotherapeutic approach and words are your thing and poetry is your thing, um, or in addition, you wish to have more of an understanding of the sort of reality of mental illness, um, I suppose my first book, Black Rainbow, is a sort of mothership, as it were, and that has got 50 poems in it that really helped me. Um, I put them all on an app as well, a Black Rainbow app, which is free, um, because I thought if... My own experience was you weren't always well enough to read, press a button, listen to a consoling poem. So that's my Black Rainbow. Then I did my Walking on Sunshine, 52 Small Steps to Happiness. And um, then my most recent one. So that was the sort of individual sort of toolkit idea, lots of different approaches. And then my Happy Kitchen, Good Mood Food. I've just got, I've got just finished a new one, actually, which is going to be, um, it's called uh, Singing in the Rain. And that's going to be like a workbook. That's coming out January 2019, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's right. And, and and that was really born of the fact that, again, quite recently for me, I, I've become very interested in active doing. Active doing? Yes. So I'm more about, uh, I think there's a place for thinking, there's a place for rethinking, but there's also a place for doing. Um, so that's very much a workbook and you do something on every page. So that one's more of a workbook where we can we can buy it and do our own. Yeah, it's more like a manual. So it's like 52 practical steps to happiness. But there's stuff you can fill in, like, for example, um, so a lot of women, for example, struggle with anger. They don't feel um, they're able to express that. And uh, some people say depression is anger turned in. Mm. And I get that from the sort of the good girl, whereas actually there were things I was angry about in my episodes. Um you know, to do with like not seeing enough of my children and the stress I was under at work, but I didn't really vocalise that. So um, in Singing in the Rain, uh, the way I've, I've structured the book is there'd be a little bit about where we are psychologically on the research on anger, and but then there would be an exercise to, to, to fill in, you know, your own experience of anger and how you're dealing with it and sort of a few questions and things you do on the page um, as opposed to just let's talk about it. I am going to be taking a short break uh, from our little conversation to bring a very short feature to our listeners called All Aboard the Positive Mental Health Bus, subtitle Keeping the Sponsors Happy. So in this episode, I am going onto the bus and I'm telling the microphone, you guys out there, how much kindness in public can have a huge effect on my mental health. A couple of things that I, I found really helpful with my anxiety disorder are... Um, kindness when people are being kind to me like little little moments of kindness noticing those bits of kindness um like saying thank you or smiling and and they just give me a bit of a lifeline in that moment and i also find that my mum once suggested that um she read an article about years ago years ago about somebody who carried a bottle of water with them and uh, whenever they felt their mouth go dry, felt their heart rate go up, felt like they couldn't breathe, they had had some sips of water and that became their, uh, their kind of, instead of their, you know, some people choose alcohol or um, or other things to numb it, uh, numb the feelings, uh, they chose just having a sip of water. And, and I still use that, although I, I'm afraid I'm s- still a work in progress. I've got my... Um, carbonated drinks rather than uh, regular water so um, what else do you find helps you now we come to a feature called solution of the episode here we are going to read out some of the twitter followers uh, suggestions of things that have helped them the most with their mental health uh, so solutions but there might not be a cure necessarily for mental illness but we do have some things that we can put into our little batman's utility belt that we mentioned earlier on in the episode now um our solution for this particular episode uh, it was a very common one that a lot of people said um and it's a bit of a surprising one. Uh, a lot of people on social media said that social media is actually a really good way of helping uh, mental health. Um, and Rethink have told me that their official line on this are, is that uh, social media and uh, social network 
uh, gets a lot of bad press. But while there are drawbacks and risks to being on social media, for example, cyberbullying or constantly comparing yourself to perfect images, there are also a lot of benefits to be had. Many people with mental health problems say that connecting with others via social media is one of the things that they find the most helpful in their recovery. Uh, now, I actually really love uh, social media. So if you want to get in touch with me, you can get in touch with me on social media at Juliet Burton with two T's and an E in Juliet. Think Juliet Binoche and think Burton like Richard Burton, although unfortunately I'm not related in, to the best of my knowledge to either of those two people, sadly. Um, now, Rachel, if anyone wants to follow you on social media, where would they go? Um, yes, I mean, yeah, I'm at Rachel Kelly hyphen net on Twitter. Fantastic. Uh, And Rachel, I also asked you before you came on the podcast what your uh, positive solution was, what the one thing that you have uh, found has helped you the most. Uh, And you said poetry and oily fish. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, um, I suppose one's for body and one's for mind. Um, So for me, the two are absolutely at the heart of, of of looking after yourself. You need both, not just enough to sort of address the physicality. You also need to address the psychology. As I say, I think um, there's lots of different nutritional strategies. Probably uh, the single easiest one is, is to increase your oily fish, tuna, mackerel, herring. Um, I know that's um, expensive fish, but... Um, as I say, um, our brain's 60% fat and it's making such a difference. Here's what Rethink have to say oh, yeah, official, officially oh, about yeah. oily fish. Ooh, I hope they say the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> they said um, a healthier diet. Uh, well, there is growing evidence that certain foods, for example, oily fish, yeah. leafy green vegetables, can boost mental health. And there is a strong link between the gut and the brain. Oh, cool, cool. As well few, as, few. <laughs> they continue to say, as well as what we eat, also thinking about how you eat can yeah. have a big effect. Taking time for meals is very important where possible and when a person is stressed, their body may be unable to digest and absorb food properly. Now I found that actually is one of the biggest rules for me is always sit down to eat a meal yeah. um, and I was that was drilled into my head but quite often it's difficult to do that when our lives I are know, so busy. on the road. It, yeah. It's really interesting and nutritionists are really in, intrigued by the French because actually the French if you looked at their diet, have sort of a much kind of less healthy diet. They're very sort of quite high fat and stuff like that. But they have better health outcomes on nutrition. And, and people think it's because there's still more of a culture of sit down, you know, lay the table, pause, enjoy your food. I knew you there know. was a reason why I wanted to go to Paris yeah, more often. Yeah, it wasn't so just the sexy men. Oh, Yeah. So, I mean, I think I think it's not as true as it was. You know, it's a bit of an idealisation, but there's something there. And I think that's absolutely true. And, and I think that's been important for me as well. And, and cooking's part of that as well, a sort of, you know, using it more as a kind of calming meditative act. You know, you've got to cook anyway, so you can just sort of almost enjoy it much more and focus and be be present while you're doing it rather than shoving something in the, in the microwave. And you also mentioned poetry and uh, Rethink Mental Illness have uh, come back to me about creativity. They translated poetry into yeah. creativity and they say officially that creative activities can really help you manage your stress levels. They provide you a way to relax and be in the moment. Creative hobbies can also boost our confidence. So if you're trying out a new hobby, track your progress and you'll likely feel a sense of achievement as this new skill flourishes what's the one simplest thing that anyone can do to help their mental health I think for me when the day is bad it's always worse first thing in the morning and the best thing for me is to set an intention by making my bed as I would like to make it in a tidy way and that sets me up for the day to give me more of a sense that I can try and make positive choices. Uh, Rachel, you've been amazing. Uh, <laughs> if you want to know more about Rachel, uh, she is an international bestseller and has been published in the USA, Canada, Poland, Germany, Turkey and Croatia. She is an official ambassador for Rethink Mental Illness, much like myself, the best people are. Uh, and she's also uh, an ambassador for SANE and the Counselling Foundation. Uh, Rachel has teamed up with nutritional therapist Alice McIntosh uh, to run Good Mood Food Workshops based on your your best-selling book, The Happy Kitchen, Good Mood Food, which I'm very excited about not only reading but also cooking from. Uh, And you heard her social media earlier on, uh, but anywhere else we can find you, Rachel? Uh, Yeah, come to my website. I have a newsletter, run a blog. Love to hear people's stories. Love to hear what's working for you. Yeah, this is my life.
Wonderful. Rachel, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, now, this is the final roundup, my favourite section of the whole podcast called Positive Thing, uh, because I couldn't think of a better title, uh, where, they, uh, where I will tell you something positive that I've learned. Uh, this is the best feature uh, to research, definitely, hands down. Uh, now, I've got two bits of information for you, Rachel, to take away. Re- yeah. Reasons to stay positive, because you're a writer. Yeah. Uh, because of your, uh, your authorship, authorship? Yeah. because you are an author, I thought you'd like to know uh, that the dot above an I or a J is called a tittle. Love it. Didn't know that. And are you interested in history? Yeah. Brilliant. I did that at university. I knew. I felt instinctively yeah. like you did. So uh, I found out that the Roman emperor Caligula uh, once declared war on Neptune, god of the sea. So he demanded that his men run into the sea and stab the water. And then he uh, declared victory and commanded his men to collect seashells as trophies. Oh, it just wow. makes me really happy. Amazing, hilarious. If I, 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 think, I think I'd get behind all wars if that was, <laughs> if that was what happened. Uh, thank you so much uh, for listening to this one episode of Positive Mental Attitude uh, podcast. Please send me your favourite reasons to be positive and also uh, the things that you think are your solutions uh, of the episode. What, what things help you deal with your mental health? I want to know what your one thing or a combination of things, what's in your Batman utility belt that helps you deal with your mental health? health uh, so please do tweet me at Juliet Burton and also at cast positive uh, funnily enough on Twitter and you can Facebook me Juliet Burton writer performer find me at JulietBurton.co.uk as well online now thank you so much to our sponsors Stagecoach Rethink Mental Illness and our guest Rachel Kelly this show was written by Juliet Burton and Liam Byrne and presented by me Juliet Burton and thank you for listening if you want other reasons to stay positive why not listen to our other Positive Mental Attitude podcasts with our other guests until the next episode remember there are loads of reasons to be positive including the fact that there's more episodes of this to enjoy <laughs> <laughs>